Radio. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. Welcome to Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael. And we are back with Billy Dixon's memories of the second battle of Adobe Walls that was on June 27, 1874. So hopefully you know what's going on here and let's not waste time. Let's just get right into it. So here's Billy Dixon continuing with chapter eight of his autobiography with quite a bit of aid it looks like from his wife and uh let's uh get into the nitty-gritty here that the stuff we've been waiting for here we go the words of mr billy dixon on the second battle of adobe walls on that memorable night june 26 1874 there were 28 men and one woman at the walls The woman was the wife of William Olds. She had come from Dodge City with her husband to open a restaurant in the rear of Rath and Wright's store. Only eight or nine of the men lived at the walls, the others being buffalo hunters who by chance happened to be there. There was not the slightest feeling of impending danger. As was the custom in the buffalo country, most of the men made their beds outside on the ground. I spread my blankets near the blacksmith's shop, close to my wagon. I placed my gun by my side between my blankets as usual to protect it from dew and rain. A man's gun and his horse were his two most valuable possessions next to his life in that country in those days. Every door was left wide open. Such a thing as locking a door being unheard of at the walls. One by one, the lights were turned out, the tired buffalo hunters fell asleep, and the walls were soon wrapped in the stillness of night. Late that evening, I had gone down on the creek and caught my saddle horse. A better one could not be found, and tied him with a long picket rope to a stake pin near my wagon. About two o'clock in the morning, Shepard and Mike Welch, who were sleeping in Hanrahan Saloon, were awakened by a report that sounded like the crack of a rifle. They sprang up and discovered that the noise was caused by the big cottonwood ridge pole. This ridge pole sustained the weight of the dirt roof. If the pole should break, the roof would collapse and fall in to injury or death of those inside. Welch and Shepard woke up a number of their companions to help them repair the roof. Some climbed on top and began throwing off the dirt, while others went down to the creek to cut a prop for the ridgepole. This commotion woke up others, and in a little while, about 15 men were helping repair the roof. Providential things usually are mysterious. There has always been something mysterious to me in the loud report that came from that ridgepole in Hanrahan Saloon. It seems strange that it should have happened at the very time it did, instead of at noon or some other hour, and, above all, that it should have been loud enough 
to wake men who were fast asleep. Twenty-eight men and one woman would have been slaughtered if the ridgepole in Hanrahan Saloon had not cracked like a rifle shot. By the time we had put the prop in place, the sky was growing red in the east, and Hanrahan asked me if I did not think we might as well stay up and get an early start. I agreed, and he sent Billy Og down on the creek to get the horses. Some of the men, however, crawled back into bed. The horses were grazing southeast of the buildings, along Adobe Walls Creek, a quarter of a mile off. Turning to my bed, I rolled it up and threw it on the front of my wagon. As I turned to pick up my gun, which lay on the ground, I looked in the direction of our horses. They were in sight. Something else caught my eye, just beyond the horses. At the edge of some timber was a large body of objects advancing vaguely in the dusky dawn toward our stock and in the direction of adobe walls. Though keen of vision, I could not make out what the objects were, even by straining my eyes. Then I was thunderstruck. The black body of moving object suddenly spread out like a fan. And from it went up one single solid yell, a war whoop that seemed to shake the very air of the early morning. Then came the thudding roar of running horses and the hideous cries of the individual warriors, each embarked in the onslaught. I could see that hundreds of Indians were coming. Had it not been for the ridgepole, all of us would have been asleep. In such desperate emergencies, men exert themselves almost automatically to do the needful thing. There is no time to make conscious effort, and if a man loses his head, he shakes hands with death. I made a dash for my saddle horse, my first thought being to save him. I never thought for an instant that the oncoming Indians were intending an attack upon the buildings, their purpose being, as I thought, to run off our stock, which they could easily have done by driving it ahead of them. I overlooked the number of Indians, however, or else I might have formed a different opinion. The first mighty war whoop had frightened my horse until he was frantic. He was running and lunging on his rope so violently that in one more run he would have pulled up the stake pin and gone to the land of stampeded horses. I managed to grab the rope and tie my horse to my wagon. I then rushed for my gun and turned to get a few good shots before the Indians could turn to run away. I started to run forward a few steps. Indians running away. They were coming as straight as a bullet toward the buildings, whipping their horses at every jump. There was never a more splendidly barbaric sight. In after years, I was glad that I had seen it. Hundreds of warriors the flower of the fighting men of the southwestern plains tribes, mounted upon their finest horses, armed with guns and lances, and carrying heavy shields of thick buffalo hide, were coming like the wind. Over all was splashed the rich colors of red, vermilion, and ochre, on the bodies of the men, on the bodies of the running horses. Scalps dangled from bridles, gorgeous war bonnets fluttered their plumes, Bright feathers dangled from the tails and manes of the horses, and the bronzed, half-naked bodies of the riders glittered with ornaments of silver and brass, 
Behind this headlong charging host stretched the plains, on whose horizon the rising sun was lifting its morning fires. The warriors seemed to emerge from this glowing background. I must confess, however, that the landscape possessed little interest for me when I saw that the Indians were coming to attack us and that they would be at hand in a few moments. War whooping had a very appreciable effect upon the roots of a man's hair. I fired one shot but had no desire to wait and see where the bullet went. I turned and ran as quickly as possible to the nearest building, which happened to be Hanrahan Saloon. I found it closed. I certainly felt lonesome. The alarm had spread and the boys were preparing to defend themselves. I shouted to them to let me in. An age seemed to pass before they opened the door and I sprang inside. Bullets were whistling and knocking up the dust all around me. Just as the door was open for me, Billy Ogg ran up and fell inside so exhausted that he could no longer stand. I am confident that if Billy had been timed, he would have been forever the world's record. Billy had made a desperate race, and that he should escape seemed incredible. We were scarcely inside before the Indians had surrounded all the buildings and shot out every window pane. When our men saw the Indians coming, they broke for the nearest building at hand, and in this way split up into three parties. They were gathering in the different buildings as follows. Hanrahan Saloon, James Hanrahan, Bat Masterson, Mike Welch, Shepard, Hiram Watson, Billy Ogg, James McKinley, Bermuda Carlisle, and William Dixon. Myers and Leonard Store, Fred Leonard, James Campbell, Edward Trevor, Frank Brown, Harry Armitage, Dutch Henry, Billy Tyler, Old Man Keeler, Mike McCabe, Henry Lease, and Frenchy. Rath and Wright Store, James Longton, George Eddy, Thomas O'Keefe, William Olds and his wife, Sam Smith, and Andy Johnson. Some of the men were still undressed, but nobody wasted any time hunting their clothes, and many of them fought for their lives all that summer day barefoot and in their night clothes. The men in Hanrahan Saloon had a little the best of the others because of the fact that they were awake and up when the alarm was given. In the other buildings, some of the boys were sound asleep, and it took time for them to barricade the doors and windows before they began fighting. Barricades were built by piling up sacks of flour and grain, at which some of the men worked while others seized their guns and began shooting at the Indians. The number of Indians in this attack has been variously estimated at from 700 to 1,000. I believe that 700 would be a safe guess. The warriors were mostly Kiowas, Cheyennes, and Comanches. The latter were led by their chief, Quana, whose mother was a white woman, Cynthia Ann Parker, captured during a raid by the Comanches in Texas. Big Bow was another formidable Comanche chieftain. Lone Wolf was the leader of the Kiowas and Little Robe and White Shield of the Cheyennes. For the first half hour, the Indians were reckless and daring enough to ride up and strike the doors with the butts of their guns. Finally, the buffalo hunters all got straightened out and were firing with deadly effect. 
The Indians stood up against this for a while, but gradually began falling back as we were emptying buckskin saddles entirely too fast for Indian safety. Our guns had longer range than theirs. Furthermore, the hostiles were having little success. They had killed only two of our men, the Shadler brothers, who were caught asleep in their wagon. Both were scalped. Their big Newfoundland dog, which always slept at their feet, evidently showed fight as the Indians killed him and scalped him by taking a little piece of hide off his side. The Indians ransacked the wagon and took all the provisions. The Shadlers were freighters. At our first volleys, a good many of the Indians jumped off their horses and prepared for a fight on foot. They soon abandoned this plan, and for good reason. They were the targets of expert, rough-and-ready marksmen. And for the Indians to stand in the open meant death. They fell back. The Indians exhibited one of their characteristic traits. Numbers of them fell, dead or wounded, close to the buildings. In almost every instance, a determined effort was made to rescue the bodies at the imminent risk of the life of every warrior that attempted this feat in front of the booming buffalo guns. An Indian in those days would quickly endanger his own life to carry a dead or helpless comrade beyond reach of the enemy. I have been told that their zeal was due to some religious belief concerning the scalp lock, that if a warrior should lose his scalp lock, his spirit would fail to reach the happy hunting grounds. Perhaps for the same reason the Indian always tried to scalp his fallen enemy. Time and again, with the fury of a whirlwind, the Indians charged upon the building, only to sustain greater losses than they were able to inflict. This was a losing game, and if the Indians kept it up, we stood a fair chance of killing most of them. I'm sure that we surprised the Indians as badly as they surprised us. They expected to find us asleep, unprepared for an attack. Their medicine man had told them that all they would have to do would be to come to adobe walls and knock us on the head with sticks and that our bullets would not be strong enough to break an Indian's skin. The old man was a bad prophet. Almost at the beginning of the attack, we were surprised at the sound of a bugle. This bugler was with the Indians and could blow the different calls as cleverly as the bugler on the parade grounds at Fort Dodge. The story was told that he was a black deserter from the 10th Cavalry, which I never believed. It was more probable that he was a captive half-breed Mexican that was known to be living among the Kiowas and Comanches in the 60s. He'd been captured in his boyhood when these Indians were raiding in the Rio Grande country and grew up among them as savage and cruel as any of their warriors. How he learned to blow the bugle is unknown. A frontiersman who went with an expedition to the Kiowas in 1866 tells of having found a bugler among them at that time. The Kiowas, he said, were able to maneuver to the sound of the bugle. This bugler never approached the white men closely enough to be recognized. In the fight at Adobe Walls, the fact was discovered that the Indian warriors were charging to the sound of the bugle, and this they tipped their hand, for the calls were understood and the buffalo hunters were loaded for bear by the time the Indians were within range. 
Bat Masterson, recalling this incident long after the fight, said, We had in the building I was in, Hanrahan Saloon, two men who had served in the United States Army and understood all the bugle calls. The first call blown was a rally, which our men instantly understood. The next was a charge, and that also was understood, and immediately the Indians come rushing forward to a fresh attack. Every bugle call he blew was understood by the ex-soldiers and were carried out to the letter by the Indians, showing that the bugler had the Indians thoroughly drilled. The bugler was killed late in the afternoon of the first day's fighting as he was running away from a wagon owned by the Shadler brothers, both of whom were killed in this same wagon. The bugler had his bugle with him at the time he was shot by Harry Armitage. Also, he was carrying a tin can filled with sugar and another filled with ground coffee, one under each arm. Armitage shot him through the back with a fifty caliber Sharps rifle as he was making his escape. And that ends Bat Masterson's quote. Back to Billy Dixon. Billy Tyler and Fred Leonard went into the stockade, but were compelled to retreat, the Indians firing at them through the openings between the stockade pickets. Just as Tyler was entering the door of the adobe store, he turned to fire and was struck by a bullet that penetrated his lungs. He lived about half an hour after he was dragged into the store. The Indians were not without military tactics in trying to recover their dead and wounded. While one band would pour a hot fire into the buildings, other Indians on horseback would run forward under the protection of this fusillade. They succeeded in dragging away a good many of the fallen. Once during a charge, I noticed an Indian riding a white horse toward where another Indian had gone down in the tall grass. The latter jumped up behind the Indian on the horse, and both started at full speed for safety. A rifle cracked, and a bullet struck the horse, breaking one of its hind legs. We could see the blood streaming down the horse's leg. Both Indians began whipping the poor brute and lurching and staggering on three legs. He carried them away. By noon, the Indians had ceased charging and had stationed themselves in groups in different places, maintaining a more or less steady fire all day on the buildings. Sometimes the Indians would fire especially heavy volleys, whereupon wounded Indians would leap from the grass and run as far as they could and then drop down in the grass again. In this manner, a number escaped. Along about 10 o'clock, the Indians having fallen back at a safer distance from the buffalo gun, some of us noticed a pony standing near the corner of a big stack of buffalo hides at the rear of Rath's building. We could see that an Indian behind the hides was holding the pony by the bridle, so we shot the pony and it fell dead. The pony was gaily decorated with red calico and plated in its mane. The falling of the pony left the Indian somewhat exposed to our fire, and the boys at Hanrahan's and Rath's opened upon him full blast. They certainly fogged him. No Indian ever danced a livelier jig. We kept him jumping like a flea back and forth behind the pile of hides. I had got possession of a big 50 gun early in the fight and was making considerable noise with it. I sized up what was going on behind the pile of buffalo hides 
and took careful aim at the place where I thought the Indian was crouched. I shot through one corner of the hides. It looked to me as if that Indian jumped six feet straight up into the air, howling with pain. Evidently, I had hit him. He ran zigzag fashion for 30 or 40 yards, howling at every jump, and dropped down in the tall grass. Indians commonly ran in this manner when under fire to prevent our getting a bead on them. I managed to get a hold of the 50 gun in this manner. The ammunition for mine was in Rath's store, which none of us was in the habit of visiting at that particular moment. I had noticed that Shepard Hanrahan's bartender was banging around with Hanrahan's Big 50, but not making much use of it, as he was badly excited. Here, Jim, I said to Hanrahan, I see you are without a gun. Take this one. I gave him mine. I then told Shep to give me the 50. He was so glad to turn loose of it and handed it to me so quickly that he almost dropped it. I had the reputation of being a good shot, and it was rather to the interest of all of us that I should have a powerful gun. We had no way of telling what was happening to the men in the other buildings, and they were equally ignorant of what was happening to us. Not a man in our building had been hit. I could never see how we escaped, for at times the bullets poured in like hail and made us hug the sod walls like gophers when a hawk was swooping past. By this time, there were a large number of wounded horses standing near the buildings. A horse gives up quickly when in pain, and these made no effort to get away. Even those that were at a considerable distance from the buildings when they received their wounds came to us, as if seeking our help and sympathy. It was a pitiable sight and touched our hearts, for the boys loved their horses. I noticed that horses that had been wounded while grazing in the valley also came to the buildings, where they stood helpless and bleeding, or dropped down and died. We had been pouring a pile of bullets from our stronghold, and about noon were running short of ammunition. Hanrahan and I decided that it was time to replenish our supply, and that we would have to make a run for Rath's store, where there were thousands of rounds which had been brought from Dodge City for the buffalo hunters. We peered cautiously outside to see if any Indians were ambushed, where they could get a pot shot at us. The coast looked clear, so we crawled out of a window and hit the ground running, running like jackrabbits, and made it to Rath's in the fastest kind of time. The Indians saw us, however, before the boys could open the door and opened at long range. The door framed a good target. I have no idea how many guns were cracking away at us, but I do know that bullets rattled round us like hail. Providence seemed to be looking after the boys at Adobe Walls that day, and we got inside without a scratch, though badly winded. We found everybody at Rass in good shape. We remained here some time. Naturally, Hanrahan wanted to return to his own building, and he proposed that we try to make our way back. There were fewer men at Rath than at any other place, and their anxiety was increased by the presence of a woman, Mrs. Olds. If the latter fact should be learned by the Indians, there was no telling what they might attempt, and a determined attack by the Indians would have meant death for everybody in the store, for none would have suffered themselves to be taken alive nor permitted Mrs. Olds to be captured. The boys begged me to stay with them. 
Hanrahan finally said that he was going back to his own place, telling me that I could do as I thought best. Putting most of his ammunition into a sack, we opened the door quickly for him, and away he went, doing his level best all the way to his saloon, which he reached without mishap. In the restaurant part of Rath's store, a transom had been cut over the west door. This transom was open, as no glass had even been put in. This door had been strongly barricaded with sacks of flour and grain, one of the best breastworks imaginable, the Indians having no guns that could shoot through it. Climbing to the top of this barricade to take a good look over the ground west of the building, I saw an object crawling along in the edge of the tall grass. Leveling my gun and taking aim with my body resting on one knee, I fired. The recoil was so great that I lost my balance and tumbled backward from the top of the barricade. As I went down, I struck and dislodged a wash tub and a bushel or two of cooking utensils, which made a terrific crash as they struck the floor around me. I fell heavily myself, and the tumbling down of my big 50 did not lessen the uproar. The commotion startled everybody. The boys rushed forward, believing that I had been shot, even killed. I found it quite difficult to convince them that I had not been shot and that most of the noise had been caused by the tub and the tin pans. I was greatly interested in the object I had shot at, so I crawled up on the sacks again. By looking closely, I was able to see the object move. I now fired a second time and was provoked at seeing the bullet kick up the dirt just beyond the object. I tried the third time and made a center shot. By two o'clock, the Indians had fallen back to the foot of the hills and were firing only at intervals. They had divided their force, putting part on the west side and part on the east side of the buildings. Warriors were riding more or less constantly across the valley from one side to the other, which exposed them to our fire, so we began picking them off. They were soon riding in a much bigger circle and out of range. This lull in the fighting was filled with a kind of disturbing uncertainty. Since early morning, we had been able to hold the enemy at bay. We were confident that we could continue to do so as long as we had ammunition. We thanked our stars that we were behind thick adobe walls instead of thin pine boards. We could not have saved ourselves had the buildings been frame such as were commonly built frontier towns in those days. Still, there was no telling how desperate the Indians might become rather than abandon the fight. It was easily possible for them to overwhelm us with the brute force of superior numbers by pressing the attack until they had broken down the doors, and which probably would have been attempted, however great the individual sacrifice, had the enemy been white men. Luckily, it was impossible to set the adobes on fire, or else we should have been burned alive. Though we did not relax in watchfulness when the Indians withdrew, yet we were able to throw off some of the high tension that had kept our nerves and muscles as taut as bowstrings until since daybreak. A man's mouth gets dry and his saliva thick and sticky when he fights hour after hour knowing that if he goes down, his death will be one of torture, lest he should be instantly killed.
All forenoon, the Indians had been descending upon us like a storm, taunting us in every imaginable way, even pounding upon the doors with their guns and lances, and vying with each other in feats of martial horsemanship. They had flaunted the bloody scalps of the poor saddlers with devilish glee. Time and again, however, we had ripped into them with our guns, and brought down horses and warriors until in many places the grass around adobe walls was wet with blood. About four o'clock in the afternoon, a young fellow at Hanrahan's, Bermuda Carlisle, ventured out to pick up an Indian trinket, which he could see from the window. As he was not shot at, he went out a second time, and whereupon others began going out, all eager to find relics. For the first time, we now heard of the death of Billy Tyler at Leonard and Myers. Tyler had been killed at the beginning of the fight, as had the Shadlers. When I saw that it was possible to leave the buildings with reasonable safety, I determined to satisfy my curiosity about three things. An iron gray horse had been standing for hours not far from the south window of Hanrahan's saloon. I could not understand what had held him so long before he was finally shot by the Indians themselves. When I reached the carcass, the mystery was clear. There lay a dead warrior who had fallen in such a way as to make fast the rope that held the horse. The horse wore a silver-mounted bridle. With a buffalo bone, I pried open the stiffened jaws and removed the bridle, also taking the rawhide lariat. On one of the reins, about ten inches from the bit, was fastened a scalp, which evidently had been taken from the head of a white woman, the hair being dark brown in color and about fifteen inches in length. The scalp was lined with cloth and edged with beads. Several other scalps were found that day. One was on a war shield. My attention, likewise, had been attracted by an object at the rear of the little sod house, west of Rath's store. We had fired at it over and over until we had cut a gap in the corner of the sod house. The object finally had disappeared from sight. For a considerable time, we had seen feathers whipping around the corner in the wind and had thought that probably three or four Indians were concealed there. Every time I had turned loose my big 50, I had torn out a chunk of sod. When I reached the sod house, I was startled at what I saw. There sat a painted and feathered warrior in a perfectly upright position with his legs crossed and his head turned to one side in the most natural way imaginable. His neck was broken and he was as dead as they ever made him. I am bound to admit that I jumped back fearful that he was alive and would bore me through and through before I could pull down on him. What we had been shooting at so frequently was the dead warrior's lance, which was covered with webbing and adorned with black feathers at intervals of every five or six inches. The lance had been stuck upright in the ground and had been shot in two, which caused the feathers to disappear. The upper part had doubled over across the dead Indian's legs. I added the lance to my prizes of war. The object that I had seen crawling along the edge of the tall grass was a third that demanded my attention. 
I found a dead Indian lying flat on his stomach. He was naked save for a white cloth wrapped around his hips. His six-shooter was in his belt. The Indian had been shot through the body and one knee had been shattered. I could plainly see the trail he had made by the blood on the grass. A short distance away lay a shot pouch and a powder horn. There were about 15 army cartridges in the pouch. A few steps further was his 50 caliber needle gun, an army Springfield. Next were his bow and his quiver. I confiscated the whole outfit. One of the noisiest and most active spectators of the fight was a young crow, which some of the hunters had captured shortly after our arrival at Adobe Walls. The crow had been petted by every man in the camp. All of us were acquainted with the old superstition that the crow is an omen of death. During the worst of the fight, this crow flew from one building to another in and out of the open windows calling call, call, call in the most dismal way. It would alight in some object in the room and sit there calling and calling until somebody, tiring of the noise, would shout, Get out of here, you black rascal, and then chase him from the building. The crow would fly to another building and repeat his performance. Despite the bullets, this crow was never injured and save our horses was the only thing left outside. There were several dogs at the walls, but all of them cut for tall timber when the fighting began and did not show up for several days. All our horses were killed or run off. The five horses that had been left in the stockade were quickly shot down, the Indians poking their guns between cottonwood pickets. Four head tied to a wagon near Rath's were cruelly killed. I saw the Indians when they first rode up and tried to cut the rope with a butcher's knife. One was a gray mare that was notorious for her vicious kicking. She would not let the Indians approach her, so all were shot. My own saddle horse, which I had owned for years and highly prized, was among the first to be shot and still lay tied to the wagon where I found him. The Indians were not without military strategy. They had planned to put every man of us afoot, thereby leaving us without means of escape and powerless to send for aid, save as some messenger might steal away in the darkness to traverse on foot the weary distance in the dangerous and inhospitable region that lay between us and Dodge City. By holding us constantly at bay and keeping fresh detachments of warriors rallying to the attack, they probably thought it possible to exhaust our strength and then overwhelm us. It should be remembered that Adobe Walls was scarcely more than a lone island in the vast sea of the plains, a solitary refuge uncharted and practically unknown. For the time, we were at the end of the world, our desperate extremity pressing heavily upon us and our friends and comrades to the north ignorant of what was taking place. At the first dash, the Indians had driven off all the horses they had found grazing in the little valley in which Billy Og had gone in the dusk of dawn to round up preparatory to our departure for the hunting grounds. We counted 56 dead horses scattered in the immediate vicinity of the buildings, some with arrows sticking in their bodies and others bored with bullets. 
of these, 10 head belonged to the hunters. Added to this slaughter were the 28 head of oxen that belonged to the Shadler brothers. In nearly every instance, a horse that had been wounded far from the Billings would stagger in our direction, apparently to get as close as possible to his friends. There they would stand in agony until the Indians shot them down, which happened in every instance. The last victim of their cruelty was a Mustang colt owned by Mrs. Olds. This colt had been captured by some of the hunters among a bunch of wild Mustangs and given as a present to Mrs. Olds, who had petted the graceful, affectionate little creature until it followed her from place to place like a dog. Some rather romantic stories have been written about this Mustang colt and the part it played in the fight of, at Adobe Walls. The truth, however, unadorned is the colt remained near the buildings throughout the fight, and when I saw it, a feathered arrow was sticking in its back. I never knew whether the colt died of this wound or was afterwards shot to put the poor little thing out of its misery. When we found that we could move around outside the buildings without danger of immediate attack, we blanketed the bodies of Tyler and the Shadlers and dug a single grave near the north side of the corral. There they lie to this day without a stone to mark the spot. Many a spring and many a summer have come and gone, and many a winter has sent its blinding snows across the panhandle since that far-off day. The Indians and the buffaloes have vanished from the scene, and the plow is running over the land where they ranged. After all, the boys are sleeping as quietly and as restfully as if they had been buried in the village churchyard back at their old homes. Despite the utmost efforts of our savage foes to carry away their dead and wounded, 13 dead Indians were left on the ground near the building, so closely under the muzzles of our guns that it would have been suicide for their comrades to have attempted their recovery. By the time we had buried our three comrades, darkness had come, and we abandoned further outside work and returned to the protection of the buildings, completely exhausted by the strain and excitement of the day's fighting. What we had experienced ate into a man's nerves. I doubt if any of us slept soundly that June night. Somewhere out there in the darkness, our enemies were watching to see that nobody escaped from the beleaguered adobe buildings. And as much as Indians rarely, if ever, attack at night, preferring the shadows of early morning when sleep is soundest, and when there is less chance of their being ambushed, we felt reasonably certain of not being attacked before daybreak. As for myself, I dreamed all night, the bloody scenes of the day passing in endless procession through my mind. I could see the Indians charging across the valley, hear the roar of the guns and the blood-curdling war whoops until everything was a bewildering swirl of fantastic colors and movements. All of my comrades at Adobe Walls that day showed much courage. It is with pride that I can recall its many incidents without the feeling that there was the slightest inclination on the part of any man to show the white feather. To be nervous or fearful of death is no sign of weakness. Sticking at one's post and doing the thing that is to be done is what counts. Bat Masterson, 
should be remembered for the valor that marked his conduct. He was a good shot and not afraid. He has worked his way up in the world and has long been a successful writer for a New York newspaper. He was sheriff of Ford County, Kansas at Dodge City in 1876-77. It has always seemed strange to me that finally he should prefer life in a big city after having lived in the West. I have been told that he has said that he had no wish again to live over those old days, that they no longer appeal to him, but I never believed it. Such a thing is contrary to human nature. All that long night, after the first day's fighting, not a sound was heard, nor did an Indian come near. Next morning, the pet crow was the only living object to be seen in the valley, where he was holding high carnival on the dead horses, flying from one carcass to another. By this time, such an awful stench was rising from the dead Indians and dead horses that we were forced to get rid of them. As we had no teams with which to drag them away, we rigged up several buffalo hides and tied ropes to them, then rolled the bodies onto the hides and pulled them far enough away to prevent the evil smell from reaching the buildings. In this way, three or four men could move a horse. At one place between Raths and Hanorans, twelve horses lay piled together. We dug a pit close at hand and rolled them in. The other horses and Indians were dragged off on the prairie and left to the coyotes and buzzards. On the second day, we saw only one bunch of Indians. They were on a bluff across the valley east of us. Some of our men opened up on them at long range. The Indians returned the fire and disappeared. It was plain to them that there was still a lot of fight left in us. Our situation looked rather gloomy. With every horse dead or captured, we felt pretty sore all around. The Indians were somewhere close at hand, watching our every movement. We were depressed with the melancholy feeling that probably all the hunters out in the camps had been killed. Late that afternoon, our spirits leaped up when we saw a team coming up the valley from the direction of the Canadian. This outfit belonged to George Belfield, a German who had been a soldier in the Civil War. A black flag was flying from one of the buildings, and when Belfield and his companions saw it, they thought we were playing some kind of joke on them. In broken English, Belfield remarked to his men, Dim fellers tink days damn smart already. But when he drew near and began to seeing the dead horses, he put the whip to his team and came in at a dead run. When asked if they had been attacked by Indians, Belfield and his men said that they had not seen a sign of one. That same day, Jim and Bob Cater came in from their camp north of Adobe Walls. It was of greatest importance that somebody should go to Dodge City for help. Henry Lease, a buffalo hunter, and volunteered to undertake this dangerous journey. Belfield furnishing a horse. Lee started after dark on the second day. He carefully examined his pistols and his big 50, filled his belts with plenty of ammunition, shook hands with us, and rolled away in the night. I doubt 
if there was a man who believed that Lise would get through alive, it was a certainty, however, that there would be a pile of dead Indians where he fell if he were given a fighting chance for his life. At the same time, we sent out two men to visit the different camps and warn the hunters that the Indians were on the warpath. They were to bring back the news if the hunters were dead. On the third day, a party of about 15 Indians appeared on the side of the bluff east of Adobe Walls Creek. And some of the boys suggested that I try my big 50 on them. The distance was not far from three-fourths of a mile. A number of exaggerated accounts have been written about this incident. I took careful aim and pulled the trigger. We saw an Indian fall from his horse. The others dashed out of sight behind a clump of timber. A few moments later, two Indians ran quickly on foot to where the dead Indian lay, seized his body, and scurried to cover. They had risked their lives, as we had frequently observed, to rescue a comrade who might be not only wounded, but dead. I was admittedly a good marksman, yet this was what might be called a scratch shot. More hunters came in on the third day, and as news of the Indian outbreak spread from camp to camp, the boys were soon coming in like blackbirds from all directions, and they lost no time making the trip. By the sixth day, there were fully a hundred men at the walls, which may have given rise to the statement so frequently made in the after years that all these men were in the fight. The lone woman who was at Adobe Walls, Mrs. Olds, was as brave as the bravest. She knew only too well how horrible her fate would be if she should fall into the hands of the Indians. And under such circumstances, it would have caused no surprise had she gone into the wildest hysterics. But all that first day, when the hand of death seemed to be reaching from every direction, this pioneer woman was cool and composed and lent a helping hand in every emergency. By the fifth day, enough hunters had arrived to make us feel comparatively safe, yet it was expedient that we should protect ourselves as fully as possible, so the men began fortifying the buildings. None of them had been finished, nor had any portholes been cut in the walls. Our shooting was done from the windows and transoms. With portholes, we could have killed many more Indians. A little enclosure with sawed walls was now built on top of Rath's store and another on top of Myers for lookouts. A ladder led from the inside to these lookouts. On the fifth day, William Oles was stationed in the lookout on Rath's store to watch for Indians while the other men were at work. The lookout on the other buildings shouted that Indians were coming, and all of us ran for our guns and for shelter inside the buildings. Just as I entered Rath's store, I saw Olds coming down the ladder with his gun in his hand. A moment later, his gun went off accidentally, tearing off the top part of Olds' head. At the same instant, Mrs. Olds rushed from an adjoining room in time to see the body of her husband roll from the ladder and crumple at her feet. A torrent of blood gushing from the terrible wound. Olds died instantly. Gladly would I have faced all the Indians from the Cimarron to Red River 
rather than have witnessed this terrible scene. It seemed to me that it would have been better for any other man there to have been taken than the husband of the only woman among us. Her grief was intense and pitiable. A rough lot of men, such as we were, did not know how to comfort a woman in such distress. We did the best we could, and if we did it awkwardly, it should not be set down against us. Had we been called upon to fight for her, we would not have asked about the odds, but would have sailed in tooth and toenail. When we tried to speak to her, we just choked up and stood still. We buried Olds that same evening, about 60 feet from the spot where he was killed, just southeast of Rath's store. The Indians that had caused the alarm numbered between 25 and 30 and were up the valley of Adobe Walls Creek, headed east. Finally, they disappeared, and we did not see them again. They may not have belonged to the attacking party and were merely passing through the country. I always regretted that I did not keep the relics I picked up at Adobe Walls. Mrs. Olds asked me for the lance when I returned to the building, and I gave it to her. The other relics I took to Dodge City and gave them away to first one person and then another. The warriors that attacked Adobe Walls made an extensive raid, riding from Cheyenne Agency at Darlington in September 1874, A government employee gave this information to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs. Quote, We are informed by Little Robe, White Shield, and other Cheyennes that Lone Wolf, a Kiowa chief, was the first to commence the present Indian trouble by going with a band of his warriors on a raid into Texas. Big Bow, a Comanche, soon followed. After these parties returned the Kiowas, Comanches, and Cheyennes, made the attack upon Adobe Walls. After that fight, the combined forces separated into a number of war parties. Some went into Texas, others into New Mexico and Colorado, and still others along the Fort Sill and Wichita Railroad and the Kansas border. We have well-authenticated accounts from Indians and from other sources that the number of individuals killed in New Mexico amounted to 40. Colorado's 60, Lone Wolf's first raid into Texas 7, Big Bow's first raid into Texas 4, the Adobe Walls fight 3, Southwest from Camp Supply, Buffalo Hunters 3, between Camp Supply and Dodge, Buffalo Hunters 5, in the vicinity of Medicine Lodge and Sun City 12, on Crooked Creek 2, on the trail north from Cheyenne Agency 5, on the Atkinson Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad 4, Washita and Fort Sill Agencies and Vicinity 14, Dr. Holloway's son, Cheyenne Agency 1, Mr. Doherty's beef contractor for these three agencies reports at least 30 persons recently killed in Texas, 30, total 190. White Shield this day informed me that the Kiowa Chief White Horse, on his last raid into Texas, killed 11 persons and captured three children. The children, he states, are now in the Kiowa camps. White Shield says he has heard of several other captives with the Comanches and Kiowas, but these three mentioned are all he has seen.
It has been said that the Indians abandoned the fight because of the wounding of Quanta Parker, the Comanche chief. And again, because the medicine man found that his medicine was bad. To be more exact, the Indians probably came to the conclusion that if they remained long enough, charged off enough, and got close enough, all of them would be killed as they were unable to dislodge us from the buildings. In the fall of 1877, many of the Comanches became dissatisfied with their life on the military reservation at Fort Sill and fled to their old home on the State Plains. Charles Goodnight was running his cattle in the lower end of Palo Duro, and the Comanches were soon killing beef. When he heard of it, he mounted his horse and rode down to where they were and made a private peace treaty with them, agreeing to give them two beeves a day as long as they remained, if they would not raid his herd. His proposal was accepted and the compact was kept until the soldiers arrived and compelled the Comanches to return to their reservation. I met Quana at that time, having gone out with the troops. As we were riding along one day, he began talking about the fight at the walls. When I told him that I was one of the men that had fought against him, he leaned over on his horse and shook my hand. We became good friends. A number of different stories have been related about Quanah's mishaps in the fight. A man who knew him well in later years said that Quanah told him that early in the fight on the first day, his horse was shot and killed at a distance between 400 and 500 yards from the buildings. The horse fell suddenly, pitching Quanah headlong to the ground, his gun falling from his grasp and bounding away. When Quanah saw that his horse was dead, he took shelter behind an old buffalo carcass over which wood rats had piled weeds and grass, making a heap about waist high. Then something happened that Quanah was never able to explain. He was struck a terrible blow between his shoulder blade and his neck. He was badly stunned, but managed to gain his feet and ran and hid himself in a plum thicket. At first, he thought somebody had hit him with a heavy stone. But as only his own men could have done this, he abandoned this notion and concluded that he had been hit by a spent or deflected bullet. His right shoulder was useless most of the day and he could raise his gun with difficulty. He left the battleground by riding behind another Indian. Had it not been for the cracking of the Cottonwood Ridge Pole in Hanrahan Saloon, the Indians would have come upon us unawares, and all of us would have been killed. Yet, we never could find a single thing wrong with the log. Every hunter that came in after the fight, as well as every man at the walls, Examined that cotton ridge log over and over to find the break, but it could not be found. The two men who were sleeping in the building declared that the noise sounded like the report of a rifle. The fight at Adobe Walls broke up buffalo hunting in that section just as the Indians had planned. This was the last buffalo hunting I ever did as a business. Hanrahan owned a big outfit and lost everything. Okay, that seems like a good spot to take a break, and 
We'll come back and finish this episode with a few comments and thoughts and uh, end the show. All right. That's pretty, uh, quite a bit of information in that. It's pretty packed. And I'm going to end the show now at that point. It seems like a good spot. And then in the future, I will come back and do kind of a little bit of a review, share some other thoughts, look at some other items in the actual history of it. Uh, I enjoyed looking at this. Uh, there's some more information that I found that I'd like to share in the future also from other individuals, not just from Billy Dixon. Um, it is interesting that he did place so little importance really on the thing that made him most famous. Well, that, and he did win the medal of honor later in that year, but we'll cover that in the future as well. I'd like to kind of look at some of the other participants in the fight. Now that we know a lot of the names of them, um, and also look at some other issues that were going on around that time. It kind of lays the groundwork. This is just one source. And as a historian, you would look at this and then compare it to other things. Like there's a misleading spot in there where he says the Cheyenne leaders that were uh, leading the, the attackers. The best of my knowledge, the Cheyenne leaders that he mentioned were the same ones that he mentioned later in that the government report. And they were giving that information the way I understand it because they actually were being peaceful. Uh, the Cheyennes that were fighting, and I might be wrong, but I, I, I think I'm right on this. It's just a matter of misreading the information, possibly, or he misremembered. Um, it's a lot to get into, and there's been some good books written about this second battle of Adobe Walls. I've kind of just now really getting deep into it for the future. We'll see what more we can dig up and find about it. But hope you all enjoyed listening to it. I enjoyed going through it and sharing it. There are some more things that we can do in the future. And, I, you know, thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting the show through Patreon or buy me a cup of coffee. It does mean quite a bit. And we're going to end the show again with another Bo Bundy song and yeah, i've been listening to him for i don't i found him a little over a year year and a half ago and you know sampling his music checking it out i i, I love it um i'm gonna play one that's not his number one song he does have a new he does have a new song out pa mi gente with uh new eels i don't know how to say that name new eels and who makes Palmas featuring Bo Bundy? Check it out. And uh, I'm going to play the song Magenta. It's off El Unico Desmadre de Mi Madre. Um, so thanks for listening. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Be kind. Adios. Ya no siento nada, 
ya no siento el dolor Ya no siento nada dentro de mi corazón Me fumo un gallito pa' perderme en el humor Para olvidarme el dolor que me causó Empiezo a sentir que ya no merezco el amor Siempre preguntando por qué el amor falleció Siempre fuimos muy felices, no sé qué pasó Ahora ya no hay nada, está vacío mi vaso Todo es magenta y borrosa mi visión Siempre en lo oscuro me la paso yo solo Me tomo una pastilla pa' sentirme mejor No sé cuántas me ha tomado, ya se me olvidó Sometimes you're flushed and sometimes you're bust And when you're up, it's never as good as it seems And when you're down, you never think you're gonna be up again But life goes on Remember that Money isn't real, George It doesn't matter It only seems like it does Ya no siento nada, ya no siento el dolor Ya no siento nada dentro de mi corazón Me fumo un gallito pa' perderme en el humor para olvidarme el dolor que me causó Siempre me pregunta por qué yo soy bien frío Y yo no la culpo porque soy de lo peor Me he enamorado de alguien que odia lo que soy Ella siempre dice que soy yo su gran error Me tomo el jarabe para olvidarme del amor Ahora estaré solo cuando llegue al panteón